Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Tim Kane. I'm a partner here at Lois Law Firm. Today, we're going to be talking about discovery, trials, hearings, and appeals. I'm going to go through some slides, and then if anyone has any questions when we're finished, uh, you can go ahead and input those, and I'll do my best to answer them. Um, so let's get right into it. Okay, so like I said, discovery, trials, hearings, and appeals. That's today's webinar. In June, we're going to be talking about permanent disability and settlements. In July, we're talking about things that impact case resolutions. So New York at 30,000 feet. Um, the goal, our goal, your goal, is to get control. Okay, um, we're looking to design and implement a return to work program. Um, I'm sorry, employers design and implement, implement a return to work program and cooperate with the carrier uh, because we are on the same page. So, you know, if an employer can get a person back to work, um, you know, that's that's great. Um, we're looking to be decisive. Okay, we figure out, you know, what our goals are and uh, move forward decisively. Um, we want to understand the system and uh, understand the way exposures can be reduced and uh, figure out how to close these cases, whether it be to disallow the claim or to settle it. Um, and you can see our hashtag there, defend from day one. You might have seen that on uh, Christian CSUN's uh, Third Friday's podcast, DFD1. Okay, there's uh, handbooks that you can go get at loislc.com slash publications. You can subscribe to uh, our podcasts at loislc.com slash podcasts. Um, there's also partner Christian CSUN's Third Fridays podcast, uh, which you can um, download as well uh, at the website. Um, and he releases that each month on the uh, third Friday. So, And there's a bunch of um, older ones you can also download and listen to if you care to. Okay, so uh, let's get right into our vision, mission, and values. We want to be the go-to firm for the top employers, uh, for carriers nationally, and the uh, best place to work as well, right? So um, as mentioned earlier, the mission is to take control and stay in control of the case and drive the case to closure. So let's get into how exactly we do that. At this firm, uh, we have our values that we always follow. Okay, creativity, uh, which is problem solving, collaboration, uh, advocacy and aggressiveness. Okay, we're risk takers. Um, we litigate, we fight. Okay, so we're, we're in it to win it. Okay, our plan is not to uh, have a not to lose mindset, but a, a win, winning mindset. Uh, professionalism, uh, that means ethics, integrity, balance, okay, and uh, service, uh, which is for example, responsiveness and relationships. So we call those our CAPS values, makes it a little easier to remember with that mnemonic. Um, and this is how we feel is the best way for us to serve our clients and to serve each other. Okay, so this presentation covers discovery, okay, CIB reports, subpoenas, depositions. We're also gonna cover hearing types, appeals, and uh, how to make sure your defense attorney is providing value. All right, so discovery, CIB, subpoenas, and depositions. Um, a CIB or ISO report um, gives a prior, a prior claims history for the claimant. Okay, this is a, uh, in some cases, a one-page printout. In some cases, it could be 48 pages, but it gives information about prior accidents, prior injuries, prior claims made by the claimant. Um, usually, these reports will show um, various Vectors, search vectors, so it could be the name, could be the address, 
Um, could be social security number. So you always want to make sure that the, the entry or the hit that you're looking at is the actual person, the claimant that we're talking about and not somebody with the same name. Um, the next inquiry or another inquiry is, was a similar body part injured in the prior claim or is it unclear? So if you have a, a back claim, was the prior claim also a back claim, you know, motor vehicle accident perhaps with a back injury? Um, or, you know, was it a, uh, you know, a left pinky toe? Um, so you can probably guess which of those two scenarios which is more relevant to your current back claim. Um, and uh, is the insurance company identified in the matching claim the same as the uh, company that provided the ISO report? In other words, do you already have these records or do you need us to go subpoena them? Um, so issuing subpoenas costs money. So we like to usually discuss that with the client and make sure we're on the same page. Sometimes a claim comes through the door and we've already been directed to issue these subpoenas. Sometimes we just get the ISO and we're making a recommendation to the client. Um, so we want to make sure that uh, you know, we have authorization to issue subpoenas. And uh, so we'll give you a recommendation once we review that ISO report and tell you which ones we think you should go after. And uh, once you give us the, the thumbs up, you know, we file those subpoenas. So here's our process. Um, paralegals, prepare subpoenas with a 25-day return date. Um, we use Security Claim Service, which has three days to serve the subpoena within that time, that 25-day time frame. Once that's served, um, Security Claim will forward an affidavit of service to the paralegal. Um, we have a paralegal or a legal assistant begin contacting the subpoena party on the 25th day and keep following up until a response is received. Once records are obtained, the legal assistant will submit records to the board file and task the paralegal for review. So, you know, every time we subpoena records, we're required to submit those to the board file. Um, and then the attorney and or the paralegal will review the records and provide a detailed analysis to the client. Um, let me go back to that. So we, um, you know, there's no use in subpoenaing records if you're not going to look at what you get and figure out if they're going to be useful to your case. Um, furthermore, uh, when these are, are, are submitted into eCase, they're very often, uh, almost always labeled as a C68. So always keep in mind, if you want an IME, for example, to look at a, a set of prior records, just keep in mind those might not be labeled as a medical narrative in eCase, so your IME vendor may not see them or notice them there. Um, so if you have records you definitely want the IME to review, um, you're going to want to take down the, uh, the document ID number. Can't keep in mind it's probably going to be labeled C68 and uh, you know, give the IME a, uh, a chance to review those records. And we're always happy to help with the IME cover letters so we can kind of point them in the right direction. Um, okay, moving on to another discovery tool, uh, covert surveillance. So everybody's probably familiar with the idea of surveillance, you know, a guy in a car uh, following people around, filming them. So we recommend surveillance during times when we know that a claimant may be active, like IME dates, holidays, weekends, birthdays. <clears throat> Excuse me, IME dates are a great one because, you know, if the person happens to walk into the IME with a, a cam boot on their leg or with crutches or a walker, and then they, you know, they go back to their car and they toss away that uh, assistance device, and they seem to walk fine after that, or whatever the case may be, if, if, if you have behavior that's inconsistent, if they say they can't drive at the IME, but they drove to the, to the um, appointment and they drove home, 
things like that are, are particularly relevant. Um, so you know, you link the surveillance footage to the medical reports. That also applies to the, the treating doctor's reports. Um, if you have surveillance around a given date and the treating doctor report differs, that can be pretty probative. Um, so we'll usually, when we decide that we're going to move forward with some particular surveillance, uh, that has to be disclosed to the, uh, to the claimant and their attorney and to the board. So we file an RFA and we just say, hey, we're disclosing that we have surveillance. You know, potentially you can raise 114A in that RFA as well, but you don't tell them what's on it. You don't tell them the dates. Okay, so once you've disclosed the surveillance, um, then the claimant has to testify without knowing what you have. Um, so you do have to kind of warn them. You have to tell them that you have it, but you don't have to tell them what you have. And then you uh, take their testimony. Sometimes they will talk about stuff that you, you didn't even uh, catch on video, stuff you weren't aware of. Um, but at any rate, um, you know, sometimes they'll tell the truth. Sometimes they'll, 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 they'll um, make a, uh, a misrepresentation. Um, once the claimant testifies, the, the surveillance is served on all parties. Um, normally, you'll have an investigator come in and authenticate the footage, um, the surveillance footage. And, um, you know, you, at that point, uh, once it's entered into evidence, you link up the testimony to the surveillance footage and, you know, potentially raise 114A or, or raise an issue of the claimant's credibility. There's also non-covert investigation techniques, um, you know, things that the person just kind of puts out there publicly. Um, you know, um, you can get a social media search, right? You can, you can see what the person has put out into the world or if they... You know, we've had claimants who are, are performing uh, in athletic events and they're telling the doctor they can't work and we, we you know, you can go see them, uh, potentially see them on TV or on YouTube or on the internet performing their, uh, their sport. Um, so, you know, you look for stuff about them, see what their, their habits are. Do they have a second job? Um, have they suggested that they can't perform activities of daily living? Um, so, you know, if, again, if you... If they're telling the doctor they can't do something and, and then you have um, footage or social media investigation or anything of them doing that thing, you know, that's going to be quite probative in your case. Um, for self-insured clients, um, the investigator could go directly to the location, okay? Um, if the person is working, say they're working with restrictions. Um, for insured clients, um, it might be a little more difficult to get the employer to cooperate with something like that. Okay, moving on to the next stage of uh, discovery slash trial process, uh, depositions. Um, we default towards litigation at Lois Law Firm. So um, claimants attorneys, they don't usually want to do depositions because they're not getting paid for those, not directly. Um, you know, they, they can explain to the judge that's one of the things they did when the time comes for them to request a fee, but um, unlike the doctor, for example, they're not getting paid to show up for those depositions. If they can work something out by negotiation, uh, that's their preference pretty much at every time, every, every, uh, every instance. So, you know, knowing that they want to avoid litigation, um, oftentimes we will tactically enter into litigation or, or into depositions to uh, give ourselves some leverage. Okay, the doctor makes some great concession and... Uh, makes life a little tougher for the claimant, you know, partial disability, for example, um, that's going to give us some leverage. So um, 
when do you request depositions? If the IME gives a partial and the treating doctor gives a, a, a temporary total, you know, there's one example. Um, if the claimant uh, submits PFME for a new or a denied site, you're going to want to cross-examine the doctor who's, who provided that report. Um, or similarly, when a surgical request is submitted. Okay, our deposition process at Lois Law Firm. So when we go to a hearing and depositions are directed, um, we task our paralegal to send the initial deposition letter within one day, uh, one business day. Um, the paralegal immediately begins scheduling depositions of the treating doctor and the IME doctor. Um, with the treating doctor in order to comply with the CPLR and give you your best chance at uh, um, either getting that cross-examination on the record or potentially you know, giving you an opportunity to seek preclusion of the doctor's testimony. Uh, we do su subpoena the doctor for two dates. Um, we do our best to coordinate with the doctor's office to find a date that, that works for everybody within the deadline that was set by the judge. Um, and then we do a protective date also within the deadline um, with a timely served subpoena, and that way if the doctor doesn't show up the first time, we have a backup date, or if the doctor fails to show on both occasions, we have two um, uh, duly served subpoena dates where the doctor didn't show, and, and we have our best opportunity to seek preclusion of that uh, testimony in those reports. Um, our standard at Lois Law Firm is to send post-deposition reports within one business day, um, and then, uh, you know, if the judge has set a summation brief deadline, that would be the deadline for uh, summations. Um, and if they, uh, you know, if they require internal review uh, by a partner, depending on who's drafting it in our office, you know, we would want to get those to the reviewing partner one week prior to the due date, so we can make sure to make any adjustments that need to be done. So, briefly, regarding cross-examining a treating doctor. Um, you know, you want to make sure you know what specialty the doctor is. Are they even a doctor? These days, a PA's report can suffice as PFME for um, a new site and, and, and that kind of thing. So um, you want to know if you're talking to a doctor, you're talking to a, a PA, or you're talking to a nurse practitioner. Um, is the doctor's specialty applicable to the diagnosis that's being made? So is there a credibility issue there? Um, did the doctor actually perform the exam or did an assistant perform the exam? Did a PA perform the exam? So are we talking to the right person? Um, has the doctor ever had any dis disciplinary proceedings or license issues? Obviously, if they um, are not allowed to uh, treat patients or treat claimants, uh, or if they've even had any issues in the past, that's something you're going to want to know about because it might represent a, a credibility issue. Um, so. We try not to ask a question on cross unless we know the answer. We have a pretty good idea of the answer. Right? Um, we're looking pretty closely at these doctor's reports when we're drafting our uh, cross-examination questions. Um, if you don't know the answer or there's multiple answers, you should have, a, most of us will have a pretty good idea of what the possible answers are, so you're prepared to pivot. When you're cross-examining a doctor or a claimant, uh, any, anyone, anytime someone's being crossed, um, you can use leading questions. So you can kind of put words in their mouth. So that's obviously a technique that we're uh, uh, putting into use when we do these depositions. Um, and when you get the concession you're looking for, um, you know, you can, you can cut it off. You don't have to self-rehabilitate. 
the doctor's source of information is usually the claimant. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've cross-examined a doctor, you know, the first doctor who submitted a uh, sort of classic New York WCB ecosystem type report, and, you know, they've never reviewed the hospital report, and they haven't, you know, seen any other information. They've just gotten, you know, the claimant's version of the story. So they're completely relying on the claimant's narrative. Um, so if you have any way to, to, to call into question what the claimant told the doctor, you know, it might cause them to question their um, their opinion regarding causality or cause-related sites of injury or anything like that. Um, so yeah, did the doctor um, review the hospital report? Did the doctor review uh, any diagnostics that were taken before they saw the claimant? Did they review any other treating doctor's reports? Um, you know, these are the questions you definitely want to ask the doctor. Um, and, you know, whatever result the doctor came out with, you ask them, could it be possible that um, you know, your the, the the objective testing um, that, 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 that you know you connected to this claimant's alleged injuries. Is it possible that could be related to a degenerative issue? Could it be related to this prior claim? Were you advised of this prior claim? Right. So that's how the ISO report becomes a very useful tool. Um, oftentimes, doctors will not be aware of prior accidents, prior injuries. So we uh, you know we have to ask them those questions. There are a number of objections that can be made um, during uh, a deposition, also during a trial. You can object as to form. Um, if, if, if a leading question is used on direct examination, for example, um, you can object to um, speculation or facts that are not in evidence. You can object if the doctor is making a legal conclusion. You can object on the grounds of uh, relevance. And there's also the uh, well-known asked and answered objection. Okay, discovery tactics. When we're discussing a strategy with a client, okay, the handling attorney or the paralegal who's, who's doing a write-up um, for, the, for the handling adjuster, they should be able to explain the uh, discovery or investigation technique that we're recommending, how it's going to have a tactical impact on the case. If this can't be connected to the overall case handling strategy in about one sentence, it's probably an adventure and it shouldn't be undertaken. So what's a good example of this? If you have a, uh, a claimant who has a schedulable injury, it's, it's established, and the person's back to work full duty, and the case is very likely going to close with an SLU, uh, do you, do you want to spend a bunch of money on covert surveillance for that claimant? Probably not, okay? So do you want to look at prior similar injuries? Yes. Surveillance? Maybe not. So those are the kind of things that every case, you know, we should be taking into consideration. Um, so discovery process is important, um, but not, not as important as doing something with the result of the process. So what does this refer to? This is, um, you know, you get an ISO, you, you, you file those subpoenas, but you don't stop there, right? You, you have to uh, review the records that you get and, and apply them um, to your case in terms of making an apportionment um, argument or um, credibility argument based on prior similar injuries or things like that. <clears throat> okay, on to the uh, fun part, hearings and trials. Before the hearing, uh, in our office, we do a pre-hearing report each time. Um, so at the start of every case, we do a legal action plan. Um, and uh, so when we're, we're go heading into a hearing, we kind of start with that as a launching pad. 
and we revisit the closer strategy, and uh, we start with the with the the end in mind. So um, you include a background of the case, any sites that are established. We have swamps here, which is a, a easy mnemonic uh, that we use in, in our office, but it refers to sites that are established, claimant's work status, average weekly wage, mechanism of injury, payment status, and status of settlement. Um, and, and, you know, including any relevant procedural history. Um, we try to only include what's relevant. If a case is uh, at the litigation stage, if it's a denied claim, and but there's been, for whatever reason, multiple hearings, that section is going to have a lot of information because we're trying to include what's relevant. If a case is four or five years old, I mean, we're not going to be talking about every single thing that's occurred in the history of that case. At that stage, you probably just jump right into what's established and what's going on now. Um, so, you know, there are different uh, versions of, of that kind of, uh, you know, what the pre-hearing report's going to look like depending on the uh, procedural status and the age of the case. Um, so that pre-hearing report should talk about the, not only the background, but the purpose of the upcoming hearing and, um, you know, anything that we're going to ask for judicial, judicial direction for, anything we need from the client leading up to the hearing, something that may have been directed previously that we're still uh, looking to get our hands on. So anything that's necessary for the hearing, what we anticipate to happen at the hearing. Um, and we'll, we'll give a list of next actions. Um, that's going to include anything we need for the hearing. Um, you know, this may be something we need, you know, C11, C240, um, a vital piece of, of evidence, whatever it might be, you know, we're going to ask for that in the pre-hearing report. Um, we have a list of tasks on each file, and so you know we'll we'll review those and see if those should be in the pre-hearing report, just so we're all kind of on the same page about what's necessary. Um, this is something we use to prepare ourselves, right? So we we're advising the client of what the status is and what we need. We're also getting ourselves started. You know, the paralegal does this two weeks before the hearing. The attorney does it one week before the hearing, and it really gives us a chance to start thinking about it. You know, rather than, for example, just taking a look at it for the first time the day before the hearing. <coughs> Excuse me. So it helps us figure out how to strategize for sites of injury, right? Is this an accepted case? If so, what sites are we accepting? Which sites are we disputing? Right. So we'll give recommendations on that if that's if that's you know hasn't been determined already, uh, or we'll we'll seek clarification on that if we're not sure what's accepted. Um, with regard to indemnity, um, are they entitled to wage loss benefits? Uh, is there unrelated wage loss? Are they working at a you know the same job with no restrictions? Are they working at the same job with restrictions? Are they working at a different job? Um, do the medical does the medical evidence support an indemnity award? Um, if they're not entitled to benefits, and if the claimant thinks they are, and we we think they aren't, that might be the basis for a trial. You know, for example, on the issue of unrelated wage loss, um, we look at the medical reports. Is there treatment being requested? Are there C8.1 bill disputes? Um, oftentimes, we'll have to ask for litigation on, you know, a treatment issue like surgery, something like that. Um, and uh, you know, very often we're going to be asking for a number number of judicial directions. Um, so we always ask that. 
these things have a deadline, so we know what we're required to do, and certainly if we're asking for the claimant to produce something, you know, we want that to be in the decision, and we want that to have a deadline, um, so that if they fail to do so, you know, we have an argument for whatever the case may be, preclusion or suspension. Um, so, you know, our job is to anticipate issues, plan out arguments to all scenarios, and most of that should be right there in the pre-hearing report. Okay, a judge always respects it when the attorney knows their case, and they hate it when the attorney does not know their case. So, you know, when I'm training people, I always tell them, try to be the person in the room who knows the most about this case. Um, you know, you gotta know your file, top to bottom. So when any question is asked, you wanna be able to say, oh, judge, that was filed on this date, this is the document ID number, uh, this is what happened at the last hearing. I feel like um, we do single single um, attorney claim handling in our office, and, and I feel like this is you know one of the areas where where we're able to to know our file better than than a lot of other attorneys because um, we've handled all the prior hearings as well. So you really do know what's going on in the case. So when the judge asks what's going on, we speak up, we speak first, okay. Um, one of the first things the judge is ever going to ask is why are we here. So usually one party or the other has filed an RFA or you know something has triggered that hearing. So it should be very easy to explain to the judge why we're here. Um, um, that should be um, top of mind for everybody going into it. Um, and then the next question is, okay, well, what do you want? The judge is gonna ask you, okay, now I know why we're here, what do you want? So you have to be able to elucidate um, you know, what you're looking for, what you want the judge to do and why the judge should do it. So you've got your uh, proofs in the file, you're able to refer to them quickly and easily with dates and document ID numbers and uh, legal logic, okay? Let's say the judge rules against us. Happens often enough, so we know our exception and possibly appeal. So if the, you, you make a, a request, the judge rules against it, you note a specific exception to that um, ruling. You make another request, the judge rules against it, you know an exception to that ruling. So uh, you want to know specific exceptions anytime there's a ruling that goes against your uh, your arguments because if and when you appeal, you're going to want to make sure you show um, the judge and, and show the board that you did uh, uh, alert everyone that you disputed the judge's ruling on that issue. And then we're on to post-hearing reports, okay? Uh, our office, our standard is... Uh, Posting reports are, are due within 24 hours of the hearing, basically the next business day. Um, it's going to have a similar background as the pre-hearing report, um, you know, because because depending on which report you pick up, you're going to want to be able to be primed and know what you're looking at. That's going to have that same swamps information, procedural history. Um, we're going to explain in plain English what happened at the hearing, not necessarily a bunch of legal mumbo jumbo, but uh, plain English. And we're going to give you a, a, an indication of what payments were directed and the time frame for that. We'll give a recommendation on whether we think you should appeal the decision and the probability of success and the appeal deadline. Uh, we give a, a settlement evaluation or an update on the settlement status. And then we'll give you a bunch of next actions, uh, both for the client and for our office. So we have a client will section. Um, 
and it includes information that we can only get from the client or things that the client needs to do, right? Anything the judge directed the client to, uh, to do or to file should be uh, in that list of next actions with uh, any deadline that applies. And then there's a we will section that includes all actions that we're gonna take as a result of the hearing. So we'll let you know basically what you need to do and what we're gonna do to uh, accomplish all of our goals and to comply with the judge's directions. If an appeal is necessary, um, first of all, as noted, post-hearing reports will discuss whether an appeal is recommended and the probability of success. Uh, if we recommend it, uh, we'll give a direction to our client as to whether we um, whether we think the carrier should issue benefits during the pendency of the appeal. So, for example, if a CCP is directed and you're appealing an additional site, you may not suspend indemnity in that instance. Uh, but if you're appealing the um, entitlement to indemnity awards, then you would suspend payments. So it kind of depends on uh, what the what the appeal is going to be all about, um, whether anything is uh, any benefits are being withheld. Um, so when we're recommending an appeal, uh, our next actions will uh, direct our paralegal to follow up with the client so that um, you know we make sure we get an answer from you um, whether you know if you want to appeal, uh, we make sure we uh, we get authorization for that. Um, the paralegal will follow up basically weekly until until the appeal is due. Generally, we'll advise clients if we do not receive a response, we will not file an appeal, right? Because you know it's your money, so uh, uh, you know it's the client's money. So if the client uh, uh, wants to appeal, that's great, but we're not going to go out uh, and do it on our own. Uh, we make our our strong recommendation, and then. You know, we need you to tell us uh, whether you want to do it. Um, and assuming a response is received, um, the attorney or the paralegal will set the appeal uh, deadline using a, a, a appeal deadline workflow that we have in, in our uh, case management software so that make sure that we file that appeal on a timely basis. So uh, at the Workers' Compensation Board, when we appeal a judge's decision, the first level is appealing to the board panel. Okay, um, if we don't get a favorable decision from the board panel, we will appeal to the full board or to the appellate division. Okay, you can do those at the same time. The, the full board is still the workers' compensation board. The appellate division uh, is uh, the actual courts. And after that, you can potentially go to the Court of Appeals, which is the highest court in New York. So when we appeal to the board panel, there's an automatic stay. So if you're appealing all issues, if it's if it's a, if you just had an ANCR trial, um, there's an automatic stay um, on whatever issues you're appealing. If it's if it's all issues, you can withhold medical and indemnity benefits. If you're just appealing, again, like I mentioned earlier, if you're just appealing the CCP, you know you might still be paying medical benefits, but not awarding indemnity. Or if you are appealing an additional site, you know you you could still withhold uh, payment for medical bills for that site. So whatever's being uh, appealed, you have an automatic stay at the uh, board panel level. Um, so, you know, keeping that in mind, it makes appeals of things like the proper benefit rate, labor market attachment, voluntary withdrawal, and degree of disability are, are tactical and strategic. Okay, you might feel strongly about it and, and, and feel like this is the strategic direction we wanna go in, but in the short term, there's also tactical value 
if you withhold benefits, I mean, a person may think to themselves, well, I think I can go back to work. Let's just settle this case and I'll move on with my life. So there's definitely value there from a tactical perspective. And once the appeal is filed, um, we should immediately be seeking to resolve the dispute uh, by way of settlement, um, right? So we've created a little chaos in the case and then we go out and we get a, a settlement demand uh, from the claimant. Okay, so this is a little table that kind of puts it out there for you. Um, the statistics at the board panel level, the lowest level of appeal, is there a stay on, on awards and a stay on benefits? Yes. There's no filing fee. It's just really the cost of drafting the appeal and drafting the RB89. Um, you know, at that stage, that's the only appeal you're going to be filing. Uh, we have about a 30% reversal um, success rate. The second levels are the full board and the appellate division. Um, at that point, there's no more stay. So if you don't get a favorable decision on whatever issue you're appealing, you know, you do have to pay those benefits. Um, at the full board, again, there's no filing fee, so it's just the, the cost of, of drafting and preparing the, uh, the appeal and the uh, RB89. With the appellate division, however, there's printing and binding cost, and we usually tell clients that's at least 5,000, uh, easily could be more depending on, on the record. Um, so the uh, full board and the appellate division, those go concurrently with each other. You don't have to do both, you can do both. We often will do both, but you don't, you're not required to. Uh, at the full board, we have about a 10% reversal percentage. With the appellate division, it's about 8%. Um, and then the court of appeals, again, there's no stay. Again, you have to pay for you know our attorney time, but also printing and binding costs. So easily, you know, five grand or higher. Um, and uh, I see we don't even have a, a reversal percentage there. I'm guessing it's fairly low. I mean, this is something where you're going to probably want to feel pretty strongly about the issue if you're going to go to the uh, the court of appeals. So, okay, some practical takeaways. Prepare each case like it's going to trial. You never know what might happen. To, you know, you might decide you want to litigate this issue or that issue, depending on uh, you know how how the other side behaves. Um, hold the other side up to its discovery obligations. So if HIPAA releases have been directed by a date certain, and they don't do that, you're going to want to go back and tell the judge, hey, they didn't do what they're supposed to do. You know, file an RFA, tell the judge, that kind of thing. If we, as defense counsel, can't explain what we're seeking from a deposition or a hearing or a trial or an appeal in simple, concrete terms, we probably shouldn't be doing it. So, you know, if you're an adjuster and you're wondering what the heck are we doing here, ask your attorney and they should be able to explain it to you pretty simply. Okay, we're playing Jenga, not chess. We're trying to kind of um, make the claimant's footing a little less stable so that they want to settle their case. Um, appeals, again, they can uh, very often be tactical. So a good way to, to sort of think about the, the difference between tactical and strategic in this um, scenario is maybe we don't think we have a very good chance of winning the appeal, but we have a stay on benefits while we do appeal. So as a tactic, we'll appeal, get that stay, and hopefully settle the case. And you never know, maybe get a favorable decision, maybe not. So that's the presentation. Um, and now it's time for Q&A. If anyone has any questions, I'm going to take a quick look and see if there are any questions. Presently, I don't see any. So I guess I did a good enough job explaining everything. So I don't need to uh, answer any questions. Obviously, if anyone has any questions, you can just uh, email myself or email any one of us. 
know, any attorney in the office that you work with on your case, and we'll be glad to help. Everyone, have a great day. I guess that's it. Have a, seeing no questions, we're going to wrap this up. It's very nice presenting for you, and uh, have a great one.